Hey everybody, uh, welcome back to another episode of After the Catch. And uh, I'm very excited about this week's episode. It's a topic... Um, You're that, excited every week. <laughs> I know. Every episode's a great episode. Uh, Absolutely. But this is a topic that, you know, Papa and I have uh, kind of mentioned uh, quite regularly... Yes. In our Tuesday podcast, especially over the last uh, couple weeks, talking about the Holy Spirit. Um, so we really thought that it would be beneficial to have an entire um, After the Catch episode uh, dedicated uh, to it. And so we're real excited about our guest today. Um, this is Carissa Vanderpool. Hi, Carissa. Hello. Good morning. Um, she was just about to take a drink of her coffee and I interrupted her. Um, but, uh, she works here at the church. Um, she is, uh, she wears many hats just like, just like all of us do. Uh, she helps coordinate the volunteer team. She helps with, uh, media and production. Uh, she video edits. She posts things to YouTube's. She helps pastor remember things. Yes, um, executive assistant. She takes uh. minutes for meetings. <laughs> she does a lot of, of things. Uh, but <laughs> she also is currently um, going uh, back to school, working on her second master's in pastoral care and counseling. And so that's really what we want to cover um, this morning. Uh, or this afternoon, whenever you're listening, is the importance of uh, pastoral care and counseling. And now the 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 degree, and Carissa can correct me if I'm wrong, is uh, focused primarily on on you being a counselor, right? Yes. Not like you being the pastor caring and counseling, not pastoral care. Is that does that question make sense? Yeah. So the degree is um, as a pastor in a church, learning how to one care for yourself, to then care and counsel your congregation. Yeah. Okay. You said that way better than I could. Um, but I know that you know your heart is kind of in a place to where you want to care and counsel pastors. Yes. Because of uh, really the the mental. Uh, mental instability that we see mm-hmm. uh, in pastors all over the world in every denomination uh, because of how you know intense uh, this job that we wake up um, every day to do uh, is. And uh, so for this conversation, uh, I'm kind of going to lean mostly on uh, Papa and Carissa because I mean, I would just sit here and say pastors need to take a break. They need to take a vacation. They need to care about themselves. Um, but that's about it. I don't, I don't want to beat a dead horse. I know a uh, pastor has dealt with some uh, some things in the past. Um, and so I'd really like for him to, to share those things and for him and Carissa to kind of have this uh, conversation with me uh butting in periodically but uh yeah this episode again we're talking about pastoral uh 
health, uh, and pastoral care and pastoral counseling. Um, and Papa, you had something to say. Well, it's just uh, I was going to ask Chris a question up front, since I am the oldest one in the group, and uh, you guys are young. And uh, so um, I've been uh, credentialed with the Church of God for almost 50 years, so I'm a little older than you guys. And uh, I know that when when I first, you know, went off to college, came home, uh, college uh, prepared you for uh, ministry in the way that, uh, you know, you knew how to prepare sermons. Uh, uh, really, that was a big thing. You learned scripture. You learned how to prepare sermons. You, you learned how to run a, a church through church polity, but you didn't learn how to do, you know, you didn't keep up with uh, how, how to keep a ledger, uh, how to uh, bank statements, things like that. Didn't learn how to negotiate loans or anything in my days growing up. And so, Taking a church, you know, going into ministry or even uh, an associate role. Um, back then, I think the question that, that I have is, being the age that I am, is, uh, Chris, uh, is in, in your studies, maybe you haven't studied this yet, but do you think that, that the, the culture or the church is warming up to antiquated, unrealistic expectations of pastors. Now, let me let me preface that with, you know, when I first started, church was like a jigsaw puzzle. You know, you laid all the stuff out and you tried to find the four corners and put the corners together, but really it was hard because you planned worship, you you provided pastoral care, uh, you led, if, if you were fortunate enough, you, you led a staff or volunteers. You had to govern committees, uh, develop programs for the education. You had uh, you had to uh, educate people in giving offerings, uh, interact with others in the community. You had to plan summer activities, fall programs, negotiate things in stressful situations. Now, in in saying all that. Back then, 30% didn't even have, you know, you didn't even have what expectations, nothing was written out. It was just you and your wife. These were things that, you know, kind of you did it all. Is things changing? Are, are people um, still looking at pastors? Well, pastor does that. Or, or uh, what What are you learning? Or have they taught you anything in that area yet? Yeah, um, I think... I think it's kind of both. I definitely think back and I mean, even my grandfather was a pastor and this was in the early two thousands and he was in charge of everything. Yes. And it, it wears you out. I mean, I think you can even <laughs> attest to that. It wears you out doing everything. And I think pastors nowadays are learning that they can't do it all. And I mean, some of them are having a hard time letting go, but I think as soon as they realize like I can't do all of this, and they get a team around them who can help them, that it relieves some stress of them, and then the team as a whole is able to progress farther than that pastor could just on his own. So, so, uh, so pastors that are older, that, have, that grew up in the ranks of having to do everything, you said it's hard for them to let go. Is it that they don't want to, or is it they're still worried about if I give this up or give that up, 
what are the people going to think about me? Will they still want me as their pastor? And so now that, see, that brings on the extra stresses. I've got to do it because they expect me to. Mm -hmm. So is that really, do you think that the people today in the church really are expecting us to do it? Or is it that as pastors, I'll say it this way, we failed to enlist volunteers because we were afraid they wouldn't well this is this is me they wouldn't do it the way I wanted it done yeah <laughs> um I think it depends on case to case between each pastor but um in well I mean even still today the pastoral role is very like reverent to most people when they think of pastors they think of just like spiritual Christian maturity and that they are basically a foundation of like moralistic and Christian values. And so people are less likely to try to step in when a pastor is doing something just because they feel like, well, that's the pastor's job. And they will kind of create an expectation of, yeah, that's what a pastor does. But also as pastors only do things like alone, they then get into that just they like fall into that rut and I mean it also depends on how controlling you are as a person um if you're good at letting things go and delegating I mean it's going to be way easier for you but if you have to micromanage and you have to make sure it's being done the way you want it you're not going to want to let go and you're just going to be like no no I can do it I can do it and you're going to build so much stress that you as a pastor you're going to start forgetting like core responsibilities of like spending time with your family taking care of yourself because all you can do is focus on the church because no one's helping you because they're not going to do it right. So so when when you talked about that, especially the word neglecting, now uh, the, in the Methodist, uh, their, their last statistics were that uh, average pastor works about 55 hours a week. Mm-hmm. Uh, 40% of them take less than three days off a month, not a week, a month, and that they found that they neglect exercise, Mm -hmm. personal devotion, relaxation. 94% of those that were in the Methodist church in this uh, statistics, they read scripture only to prepare sermons. So uh, the statistics were, uh, more statistics, uh, was 50% of the pastors are stressed out on their job. 5% suffer depression. Uh, 26% of them find it difficulty working in the church because of these uh, depressive symptoms. And 47% of them found that there was, they had members that were mean to them. And, uh, and then also pastors are, uh, in the Methodist, this was their, their findings, that uh, obesity was 40%. Uh, 51% of the pastors had high cholesterol. 11% of them were borderline high blood pressure. Uh, 17% had asthma, and 9% of them were were diabetic. So, so when uh, uh, when you look at that, uh, that that uh, the working schedule is 55 hours, uh, won't take a day off. Uh, what is that doing to? them, not just physically and spiritually, if 94% read scriptures just to prepare for sermons, um, that that's a whole topic in itself because we, yeah, it we get so tied up in 
because as soon as Sunday's over with, it's time to start over again. And, and so, you know, where do you, if you work a lot of hours, uh, and, and, and maybe you're in a small church that you don't have a lot of volunteers, that adds stress to you. Uh, maybe the workload is not as hard in that church. I don't know, but, but, but when you look at all of these things, these are numbers that are kind of, so if that's just one denomination, then just don't think of a denomination, just put it across the board that, that all, pastors are in trouble. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's safe to uh, to put it across the board. Like, you, you know, you brought up the Methodists because they're the ones that, that uh, have this stuff out there. Yes. That have done, you know, these studies and this research. Um, but I, th- I do think it's safe to say that their numbers are probably not far off every single other denomination, whether you're Baptist, Pentecostal, Catholic, Presbyterian, like, their numbers are probably uh, pretty close. I know six years ago, uh, I believe the statistic was 80% of pastors um, only read Scripture when when preparing for a sermon. Um, but with, with their number being 94, I'd assume that that 80% has risen uh, to at least... Ninety percent. Well, these these were twenty twenty a uh, February twenty twenty um, uh, statistics. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> well, you know, I didn't mean to derail your question. No, 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 I just no, wanted. No, no. I did want to clarify for but, people listening. He's he. We're saying Methodist, but I, I'm sure it, it, it is, is across, across the board. Because that was the one that was easy to find the statistics for that in the Seventh Day Adventist. I didn't find any other statistics. You know, the National Alliance on Mental Illness said that one in five uh, people in clergy will experience, uh, uh, well, they're just calling it mental illness, that Mm -hmm. one out of five pastors in the United States will experience uh, mental illness in a year, yet 43% of them will only go out and seek uh, treatment. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that, uh, I, I can tell you my own thing, but but why is it that if a, if a pastor is experiencing burnout or depression or whatever else it might be, why is it that we want go get help. <laughs> Have you talked about that? Yeah. Um, per, I think it's just, I think part of it's pride. Um, I definitely think that um, pastors have taken on this unnecessary just expectation of they don't have problems because as the pastor they solve uh, problems yeah you got to be the perfect person behind so, the pulpit absolutely yeah and so when a pastor is experiencing depression they just shake it off and they're like oh i'm not depressed i'm tired i just worked a long day like whatever maybe i need to go eat more iron or something in my diet like they'll just blow it off instead of like actually targeting the problem because they just have this this expectation that they have to be perfect they can't have problems they solve problems they don't need counseling they're the ones who counsel people and it just builds up this this like need inside of them to push all imperfection away and it creates one you're going to burn out and it just creates this inauthentic pastor who's now so afraid of being vulnerable with anyone that when he's on he's on his stage like preaching to his congregation it's not coming across it's not going to land and he's like, why my sermons aren't doing as good? 
and he's just going to be like, well, the people weren't feeling my message today. And he's just <laughs> never going to get uh, to that point unless he finally seeks out, like, I have an issue. I need to address it. And um, yeah, I, I, you know... Um, Tell yeah. us, tell us, tell us about well, well, about your experience in that. I'll lead up to that. Okay. Uh, you know, one of the things is that in my early days, um, we we kept things to ourselves, and and certainly if we were having any problem within our church, you certainly couldn't talk to your your church people about it, and and if you were having a problem, and and uh, but but I remember. I was we Debbie and I had took our second church and uh, and uh, and and uh, we were in a community where it was a large it was a big it wasn't a country it wasn't in the country setting a rural setting we were in a big town large town I'll just leave it at that and uh, so but but one of my best friends that 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 I grew up with was pastoring a church in the same area a, a ways from us but in the same town. And uh, so one day, you know, I went out, ate lunch with him or breakfast, whichever it was. And, you know, I just started saying, hey, man, I'm having a problem with this. What would you do? And then the next thing I know is he's calling on my members saying, hey, you probably ought to come to church over here with us. Well, you know, you feel like, wow, I just got stabbed in the back. And uh, now you don't want to tell anybody anything because you're afraid that, you know, they're going to use it against you. And and then again, I think it's, you know, pastors have this instability uh, that, that, you know, uh, if people don't want me anymore, where am I going to go? You know, I don't, I just got here. I don't want to do, you know, I don't want to upset the, the, the cart. And, and, uh, but now for me, you know, I've been in this a long time. So I've, uh, I've, I've, uh, I've worked associate jobs where I was given an outline. This is your job. Uh, the The last associate job I had was I went to work at six o'clock in the morning, and at at noon I was through. Mm-hmm. I did nothing else. I was the administrator. That sounds like a great job. It was. I was administrator of the daycare and and uh, in the school. And so Debbie and I were up at six to make sure that uh, the the daycare was that someone you know the daycare director was actually there, and then and that Debbie was there from six to nine, and then she was there from three to six, and uh, so my job was basically really a simple job because I just made sure things ran. The first week was my hardest week because I had to prepare the budget to give to the to the board, make sure that we made enough money and where did it all go and things of that nature. So that was such an easy job. So you know, I was fishing at two o'clock in the afternoon because I didn't I didn't do nothing at evenings. Yeah. Uh, I did, if now if I didn't have a teacher, then I may have to teach the class if I didn't have anybody. But but that was so easy. And then Debbie and I went from that to pastoring a church that split and uh, nobody trusted anybody in this church and and the church split down the middle it was a church running probably almost 700 people and now two churches one is running 150 and the other's running 80 and we had the larger church and uh, so you lost a lot of people and then a lot of people were hurt so it was more being at a funeral than 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 church services and 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 so then you know, uh, we we ended up here, 
in the community that we're living in now. And, uh, and uh, so I, I know that uh, back in 2004, that year, um, I got into, of course, the doctor said I was depressed, and I told him, you know about physical things, but you don't know. I am not depressed. And, uh, and, 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 but I had two doctors tell me that, that I was depressed. And, of course, again, I told two doctors I am absolutely not depressed. And one of them was our personal friend that was family that was a doctor and said, uh, you know, you're depressed, you're depressed. <laughs> and I, I, you know, I'll smack you a uh, woman. And, uh, and, and, uh, cause she was a lady doctor. And, uh, one of the things that I discovered was, is that it, it you know, it, it got harder to do my job. Um, I was tired. Uh, I didn't want to get up in the mornings. I didn't want to come to church. I didn't want to do music. I didn't want to do anything. But there again, I had to because, well, if I don't do it, I, you know, I can't take a couple of months off because uh, our church back then hadn't really set up anything for sabbaticals. Most churches don't have that. Of course, the Church of God now has instituted a, a where you can take a 30-day a sabbatical within the church of God and, and it doesn't hurt you. And, and, uh, so, you know, you know, I, I just, but I, I still preached every Sunday, but I can tell you that on Sunday mornings I would lay in the bed and, uh, usually that's the early day we'd get up and I, I'd tell Debbie, I, I actually would cry, Debbie, do I have to go to church today? I don't want to go to church. The thing I kept telling Debbie over and over, but she's the only person I would talk to at that time. And, and I kept telling her, I said, but I just don't have anything to give to these people. I don't have anything anymore. And, uh, so, so this went on and, and then one Sunday morning, I just, you know, I didn't want to get out of bed. I didn't want to come church. I just cried in the bed and I told her, I said, you know, I just don't have any faith anymore. I'm not depressed, Debbie. I don't have any faith. I said, I love God. I know there's God. I understand all that, but I just don't have any faith inside of me anymore. And I'll never forget that that Debbie began to pray. I did not know this till it was over with. And uh, this lasted probably nine months or so. And um, But I... I, I showed up every Sunday and Debbie kept saying, you got to quit preaching the way you're preaching. I said, yeah, but people are being blessed by it. And yeah, I know, but you're talking about yourself putting their name in it. And, and it did help people because people, some people were still struggling in some areas, but uh, you know, it's like, we would pray for people, and it's like, you know, uh, come by you, Carissa. I'd say, oh, God, you, you know, Carissa really needs for you to help her today. You know, bless her, Lord. I, I used your name, but I'm really, you know, because who do you ask to pray for you because you're afraid? You know, first of all, I'm not depressed. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I think that's that we get this mentality that, uh, this expectation that people expect us that we don't get sick. Mm -hmm. Nothing happens to us because we're supermen and, and, and we're just, uh, you know, Spider-Man or whatever. Nothing can, 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 can touch us because <laughs> we're God, you know, we belong to God and you know, we're just whatever the word is I'm looking for. We're, we're invincible. Mm -hmm. At least we think we are. And, and you know, and, and Debbie started praying in the month of June 
she said, uh, Lord, uh, and, and this was her prayer, you know, if, if you said that when we got married that we are one, then I, you have to give me faith for him and let my faith be his faith so that when he gets his faith, uh, then, then it'll come back and he'll be okay. And, and the, the thing that, that, I mean, there was, I didn't want to do anything. I didn't want to go fishing. I didn't want to play golf. I didn't even want to talk to people anymore. I just wanted to stay at the house. I didn't care about watching TV. I just wanted to get in the bed, go to sleep. Um, and, and so I know that, uh, at that point of time, our children's church was collecting items for for the uh, heart of Florida, uh, our uh, for the Church of God, and we were sending you know items, toilet paper, toothpaste, all kind of things that they could use. And children's church was collecting all of them, and Debbie and I would send it and, and d- deliver it because it was just over in Ocala. We would take it to them. Well, I'll never forget that they called Kim. And and said to her, we we needed uh, thirty two book pack uh, backpacks mm-hmm. with all you know school supplies and stuff. And said there was one church that had promised they would uh, do them, and they've backed out. And we've only got and this is this is third uh, this is Wednesday evening, or yeah Wednesday evening, and uh, wanting to know you know school starts on monday could we help at least get 16 of them and they told us you know all the stuff and kim and debbie have a good relationship and they kind of think a lot and of course kim said well i haven't got taught to pastor and pastor's wife but i'm sure the answer is yes so she came and told debbie and 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 they came in the office and they're talking about it and and i responded with I can't believe these are my words. I can't believe that they they call the poorest church of God in the state of this is my state of mind, uh, the poorest church of God in the in, in the state of Florida. And I said, you know, I don't even know if we even had enough money to help kids get all our stuff. Of course, they said yes, but you know, my thinking wasn't really good. Yeah, you weren't in a, you weren't in a good headspace. Yeah. And so, you know, I said, and we were the poorest church, and, and this was on Wednesday. Well, Debbie Debbie called everybody in the church that, you know, had extra money that they could give some money. And, and it was amazing. Every person that, that Debbie thought could help us financially help get all this stuff, not a one of them were home. They didn't answer the phone, all this stuff. But Debbie raised money. Uh, on Wednesday night and Thursday, and and Kim went out and bought sixteen, uh, not not knockoffs, but but nice uh, the name brand uh, backpacks, mm-hmm. and she was telling people at stores that, and they gave them to her at really discounted prices. They she got all of the school stuff, and it was less than 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 anticipated, and they brought all of it, and so Debbie and I loaded up the car to take them that Friday. Well, it was 4.30 on Friday morning that the Lord actually woke me up. And, and, and I don't want people to think that, that I'm some freak or something, but, but the Lord actually spoke to me, an audible voice. I know Debbie could have heard it if I could have got her woke up, but she wouldn't wake up for nothing because I'm talking out loud because he's talking out loud. And, 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 and I just know it's just, 4.30 in the morning, the Lord woke me up and said, I'm not poor 
and I still heal. And I said, okay, God, what are you talking about? And he said, you. He said, you said that, that my church is the poorest church, and, that, and he said, I am not poor, and I still heal. And the Lord spoke these words to me. He said, uh, he said, you're not depressed. You have a defeated mentality. And he said, you can't pray your way out. And, and he, he said to me, I mean, it was just like he was sitting on the edge of the bed just talking, in a, and it was not a harsh tone. It was not, um, uh, what was the word I've been looking for? It wasn't one of them like, you know, that he's correcting me in a harsh way. It, it was just wonderful. And, and he said to me, he said, but you feel like you've been, you fell in a hole that you're never going to get yourself out of, and that's that defeated mentality. And the Lord said, you're not going to pray your way out of this. He said, you got to sing. you got to sing your way out. And the Lord began to sing to me. Now, let me stop there and tell you about my mom. Now, my mom on Thursday night uh, was, uh, was laying in the bed, and the Lord, she, my mom said the Lord spoke to her and told her to go to Zephaniah and look at a very chapter and a verse, and it began to sing. And the version she was reading out said, I will sing to him in the night. I'll sing songs over him. I'm going to restore his name. I'm going to restore his character and his wholeness. And, and my mom said, okay, Lord, what are you talking about? And the Lord spoke to her and said, I'm talking about your son, Terry. Call me by my name. Said, I'm talking about your son. I'm going to do that. Well, that was Thursday night when, at 1130 at night. So my mom knew nothing about what we were going through because uh, we hid it from them. And, and so 430 in the morning, the Lord said to me, and he began to sing to me, and he sang two songs to me. But from that point, it was like I, I could see it then because I saw a vision. I was standing in the front of the church, in the front there, and I could literally see it. And I could see that, and, and this is all in this depre- or this defeated mentality state, and, and, and I could see people driving up in the parking lot, and I could see these looked like little small-bodied dogs, but their heads were very big, and people would get out of their cars, and it was like they were just bouncing around like they were so glad to see them, and they'd follow them to the door, but they didn't come in. And then I watched people drive up. Now, I, I didn't see faces on the people, but it was people, and they were getting out of their cars, so, you know, it wasn't I can't tell you, well, that was Roy's car, that was, you know, Jack's car, <laughs> Sam's car, you know, Susie, whatever, you know, but, but it was cars and people got out. And then I saw people get out of these cars and, and these dogs then were like open their mouths and their mouths were full of just awful teeth, not just a few, but just lots of them. And they were nipping at the heels of the people as they were walking up and the Lord said, I have stationed angels and, and I could see them standing at every entrance door and they were in a crouch position. He said they're in the defensive mode and he said they're they're placed in this place everywhere that that there is an entrance coming in. He said, and at some point you will call them to 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 the offense and they will fight for you but you can't pray your and then this is the lord told me this quite a few times you can't pray your way out you've got to sing your way out 
And, and one of the, and now that was the turning point for me. Uh, no medication. I never had to go to a doctor. But that point is what turned me around that the next morning I didn't cry, that I had to get up. And it was a wonderful experience to take these. There was a little boy, he was nine years old at the orphanage there, that helped us unload the the uh, the, the the car that we had all these these book bags and stuff and they were full of stuff and this little boy was so excited he said do I get one of these I said I think so and he was so excited the the smile on his face and 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 here he is you know no mother well he has a mother but he doesn't because he's in an orphanage and he was so excited that he's got this bag now you know I wouldn't tell anybody, and I didn't want to. And when my own doctor said that, I told him, no, I'll work through this. I don't want to take medication. I'm not going to see a psychologist. I'm not crazy. (laughs) You know, because I think sometimes that's what we think if you're depressed or when we say mental illness, we we think you're crazy. But but one of the things is, is that got me out of that was, and so when I did tell this story to a few people, you know, one of the things was, is, okay, I got one guy that still calls me. He'll say, have you sung today? Have you been singing today? So I know that when I start getting into that, I'm never going to get out of this hole I've dug myself into, you know, um, I have to sing. And, and so I think that I guess what I'm trying to say, if, if, you're, if you're listening and you're in this predicament that you are having some difficulties and maybe there's a burnout or depression going on in your life, some, maybe, maybe you need to find a way to get yourself out of it. I'm not saying you get yourself out by yourself, but for me it wasn't praying. The Lord told me I needed to sing. So, you know, for me, it's real simple. I'll come down here at midnight when there's nobody here, and I'll sing to myself. And that's how I can get out of that funk that they say you get into. So I understand. I I don't know that I know how to tell somebody to get out, but I understand what a person's going through when they get to that that point. Um, But I think as pastors, we're afraid to tell anybody because we don't want anybody to think that that we're not uh, well <laughs> I don't know that what the word is I'm trying to say there but I don't I think we don't want people to think that 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 we're vulnerable that because we're we're supposed to be the one that's strong we're supposed to be the one that knows all the answers now that helped me because now I can say to people I don't know what the answer is and I don't feel bad about it because I don't uh, I you know I I don't have the answers to everybody's problems but but because the Lord helped me with mine I do know that I think he can help you also but there is nothing also wrong in going seeing a doctor and letting them also help you in that sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> well, let's talk about that uh, vulnerability and what, you know, I'm going to lead this, uh, direct this towards Carissa. What is the importance um, of, of being vulnerable? Not, not, I mean, not only as a pastor, but. I mean, as uh, as a person, I think you can speak well to this. Yeah, um, I mean, living vulnerably, living like authentically who you are, 
it's going to make your life easier. Trying to hide all your imperfections is going to be exhausting. And I mean, um, when I grew up in my grandfather's church, I kind of developed this stigma that I'm in the pastor's family. I have to be perfect. And so I tried to be perfect and I was around all of the adults (laughs) and I was a terror to all of the children. Um, And they knew it. They were like, she'll turn on a little smile as soon as the adults come in the room. But as soon as they leave, she's a monster. (laughs) And I was. And I just I had this thing like I have to be perfect. I have to be perfect. And it really hindered me growing up and experiencing basically the freedom that God gives us because I was so worried about trying to be perfect because I couldn't like disgrace my family's name. And I mean, there are still (laughs) times because he was a pastor in upstate New York. I'll go back to New York and I'll be walking around and people are like, you're pastor Mac's granddaughter. And I'm like, how do you know that? I have been gone. I moved to a different state for eight years and you still know who I am. And it just makes me, I'm like, be the pastor's granddaughter. You're the pastor's granddaughter. And I had to stop. I'm like, no, I mean, I am, but that's, that can't be my characteristic, like my defining purpose. And if you're not like able to live vulnerably, you're just going to hurt yourself because you have to keep all of these imperfections. And I mean, as soon as you like break, cause you're going to break, <laughs> you're no longer going to know who you are because it, when you break and if you're trying to be perfect, you're trying to be perfect. As soon as you you realize you're not, you're going to spiral. Yeah. And I just being vulnerable, especially with like a core group of people, doesn't have to be with everyone, but if you have at least a friend that you can do that with, it's going to alleviate so much pressure in your life because you can actually talk to them and have a conversation about it. Whereas if no one knows any of your imperfections, like no one knows you and you're not going to be able to really live and like have fellowship with people because they don't really know who you are because you're hiding most of yourself. You know, uh, I raised two boys in, in the church. That's all they've ever known was, was, was being in the church. And so I don't know if any young preachers with young children are listening to this podcast, but I can tell you don't let the church raise your children and, and I learned the hard way. I was rough on the two boys, Debbie and I were, in the younger days because we were associates and our kids were supposed to act a certain way and be a certain, they were supposed to be behaved and all of this. And, and finally, you know, I, I you know, made a decision, hey, I'm not telling you how to raise your kids. These are my two boys, and you're not going to tell me how to raise my children. I will raise them with my, my convictions and my, my values, and, and, and I'm going to let them also be boys. And, and so, you know, that expectation, you know, Andy was, was, was the youngest, and uh, so he played baseball, and you know, I wouldn't miss a Wednesday night if he had baseball game. And uh, Stacy and Mary and and Terry and our church uh, were were almost our slaves because they took uh, Andy to the games. And you know, in his last year that he's playing baseball, he wasn't going to play anymore after that last year. So you know, hey, I started. You know, because members would take off Wednesday night mm-hmm. and go watch their child play. So, you know, I said, hey, I'm going to miss, I've missed some opportunities. I miss some things because 
in the early days again because of church. We 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 let them dictate to us. And then as I got older, I certainly don't let don't let anyone dictate to you. Raise your children, and, and raise them with your values and and things of that nature. Uh, and that that's in, you know that's real important uh, with your children being that. Uh, and and it's and it's rough. It adds more stress on mm-hmm. you if you know. Do you know? Uh, I was told one day. Did you know that your oldest son is out on the front uh, at the front doors? He's got dice and they're playing craps or something, whatever the game was they called it. And said they're 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 out there throwing dice. Oh, he's teaching he's teaching the kids some bad stuff. Well, I can't help it that his grand his grandfather was a you know a card shark and. Like, you know, die, well, whatever. Yeah. And um, so, you know, those add, that adds stress on you. But what does it do to the kids? Oh, yeah. So it if you're, as a pastor, not allowing your children to live because, one, you want them to be the perfect family, and then you're prioritizing church before them, I mean... Yeah. That's why they say pastors' kids have this really like they go to college and they have these insane rebellious stages because they're finally free yes. of like the judgment of their parents. They're free of like all the kids, like all the other adults who will call their parents and are like, "Hey, the pastor's son's out there, yeah, shooting dice or whatever." So it like builds up this like, well, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be in the church. I'll never be a pastor. And then they just completely overcompensate for everything that they missed and they run the risk of just severely falling off track or I mean some of them don't but I mean when it comes to like my sister and I my sister was very like straight laced she did everything she went to all the church services did all of that I on the other hand cut my hair pierced my ears dyed it like everything I just went wild got tattoos and everyone is like oh no like Carissa's falling and I'm like no backsliding I'm just living my life like I just I wanted to do it so I tried it like you shave half of your head and then you're like oh this is a terrible idea and so they call my grandfather and they're like your granddaughter's being rebellious and he's like what for what like he didn't even know and I'm like it'll grow back we'll be fine so it's just like that having that overarching like control over your kids is going to severely limit their ability to express themselves and they're going to feel like they can't be vulnerable with you as your parent because you're the pastor and you're making them be too perfect than who they are and they're going to feel like I'm not good enough to even be in this family yeah. and that I can't I can't be here because I feel like I'm disgracing you so they're just going to run you know bringing that up debbie and i have a, well we know quite a few uh pastors ministers that were in the church and uh they they lost their children to the church and i don't even know to this day do some of them go to church because of the the way the members treated mom and dad but then also the way they were treated for being mom and dad's children and so, you know, I'll never forget one of the churches we were at. The baptism pool was was big. It was a big uh, baptismal pool. And uh, so we were going to have a baptism service on that Sunday. And 
and and it needed to be cleaned a little bit. And so I took some dish liquid stuff, and I, I actually put too much in it, you know. And so bubbles, I mean, it's a bubble bath, and, and I'm taking a five-gallon bucket. And, and, and David is helping me, and, and, and one of his friends were there helping me. And they went and put their bathing suits on, and we're taking a five-gallon bucket and scooping up soap and going outside. And next thing I know, David has gone over because Andy's just, Andy's still a baby. He's put the floaties, the little blow-up floaties on his arm. Andy's standing on the side of the thing, just barreling off in there, you know, and people, you know, and, and I can't believe pastor's kids is in there. Oh, that that has got to be, oh, that's blasphemy, you know, because mm-hmm. he's in there swimming in the swimming pool, you know. We didn't have a swimming pool and i wasn't gonna tell him not to play in it because hey i didn't see nothing wrong with it but i think (laughs) sometimes our kids uh get get burned out on church because uh we we dictated things but then the expectations that i guess we had that our kids had to be perfect and uh, i don't know do you think that's changing in 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 with the with the younger men and women that are coming in, is that changing in ministry or or is there any statistics on that? Um, I don't know any statistics. Uh, I don't necessarily know if it's changing because of the younger congregation, but I think there is a sense of it changing solely because people are, they're realizing the dangers of it. Okay. And even if it's like second gen, third generation pastors, like following in their family's footsteps, realizing I want to be better than that or just someone who really has a heart for ministry and seeing it. It's I think it's just as time moved on, people are realizing like this is dangerous, like mentally, emotionally, like this is not going to lead to like longevity in ministry because of how toxic it could be. So I think people are realizing and they're trying to focus more on like, no, I will take Friday and Saturday off and I'll spend that with my family and, if someone calls me after I'm out of work, I just have to return the call the next day. And they're trying to put more boundaries in their life so that they can better ensure that they're spending time with their families and that when people call them and are like, your children are doing this, and they're like, yeah, they're children. <laughs> it's allowed. And I mean, my grandfather used to get complaints because we would dance and like all of the children would dance in the front because we had this giant open altar. And he's like, it's praise songs like we're singing enemies camp and yes they're four years old they're gonna jump up and down and dance they're excited and it's like as soon as worship happened we had someone um my aunt was our youth our children's pastor but as soon as like a worship moment came she'd sit next to us she'd be on her knees and she's like okay now it's time to worship and instead of correcting us for dancing she would just coach us and so this is now a moment of reverence And now, and we had these giant ornate flags, and then we had really small ones for the kids. She would hand us small flags. She's like, wave these. And it gave us something to do, but it also allowed us to experience the reverence of God. And I think sometimes we're so quick to correct behavior, but we're not giving them another option. Okay. I think um, you mentioned you know, the, the, the boundaries, right? Mm-hmm. Pastors are trying to put more boundaries around things. Um, uh, Cloud and Townsend, uh, two authors have written an entire series on boundaries. Um, their first book called Boundaries is about, uh, is about ministry okay. and the boundaries that pastors need to put up around themselves to protect themselves, um, from 
really from from burnout, from depression, from anxiety. Um, they have one uh, titled Boundaries in Marriage, which is a great book if you're, you know, young and getting married or newly married or, or, or just thinking about the idea of marriage. And then they have one called uh, Boundaries with Kids. Uh, so they have three books, uh, all entitled Boundaries, but different subtitles. Um, and, and those are really great if you're if you're listening to us going, you know, okay, how? Yeah. Right. You're you're, you're saying, you know, put up these boundaries. You're saying not to do it this way, which is the way, you know, that 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 you may have been raised, you know, because um, I, I think we were I think we were talking the other day. Maybe it wasn't us, but about, uh, you know, fathers uh, treat or, or husbands treat their wives the way they saw their father treat yeah. their mother. Absolutely. Um, and so the people out there listening are like, okay, but I was raised, uh, you know, I was raised that way as the perfect child. And so my child needs to be the perfect child. And they don't know how to, they don't know how to do it any other way. Um, so these are some great books, uh, if you, if you need kind of a resource on that. Um, but I, with that in mind, you know, I do kind of want to ask the question, um, uh, how, how do pastors do this? Um, ooh, excuse me. Dr. Pepper's coming up. Um, how, you know, how do pastors become uh, vulnerable? How do they, how, how do they work, I don't know, how do they work through this, I guess is my question, because we have, we have a friend uh, that basically says, you know, you just do it. Mm-hmm. It's just, you know, change your change your mindset, right? Because it's all in your head. Uh, which there's there's some validity to that. But as I know, I'm sure as Pastor knows, as you know, Carissa, uh, it's not that easy. No, you can't just not. you can't mm-hmm. just flip a switch and, and the problem's fixed. Um, so so h- how do they how do they do this? Maybe how have how have how have you done it? How? What are things that have helped you through it? Uh, that's that's my question. How? Um, I mean, I started with one person, and I just told one person just something that I was struggling with that I didn't really know what to do. Basically, went to him and I was like, "Hey, I have a lot of anxiety about just this," and I told one person and. We just had a conversation about it, and then it just allowed me to realize, like, I can tell someone, and they're not going to immediately hate me. And I think that was something in my mind where I was like, if I tell people that I have problems, they're not going to like me anymore. They're going to think that I'm broken, yeah. and they think I'm not. Like, they're we just going to see the anymore. problem. Yeah. They're not going to see you. So, I had to just start with one person. And I mean, if you're struggling with being vulnerable, fine one person you can trust and i mean if you can't be honest with that's the important word i think trust yeah that this has got to be a a close friend Mm -hmm. i think yeah and i mean if you can't tell anyone about what you're going through i mean reevaluate the people you have in your life um like i found one person i was like i trust them i'm gonna try and i i did and then just we had conversation and it allowed for me to open the door to just tell them more and then they would also reciprocate, and we built this great friendship that's vulnerable, and we can tell each other anything, and we're not going to judge each other for it. 
and whatever problems we're having, we know they might be dumb. And I've gone to them and I'm like, I know this sounds stupid. I know that I'm, I'm overthinking this. And then I just like lay it all out there. And they're like, yeah, that's, that's dumb. And I'm like, I know. Okay. I feel better. And literally just saying it improves it. And I have a uh, friend who's always said, you can't start to heal until you tell someone about it. And the minute you share something that's burdening you, you're immediately going to feel better. And that's when the true healing is going to start because it's in community. And uh, one of the biggest things that um, I learned from my class is actually, um, I read this book by uh, David Benner, and he basically said that pastoral care and counseling is needed because there's not enough Christian friendships. And if the congregation of the church actually cared for each other Whoa. like true friends, Whoa. there'd yeah. be less need for care and counseling. Yeah. And so he's there's like... that community. We were just <laughs> yeah. talking about that recording the other day we um, about do Christians love each other. Yeah. Yeah. And so he, he proposes the statement that counseling isn't necessary, but it only is because Christians aren't friends. Yeah. And oh. the friendship that Christians have is so surface, yeah. yeah, that the minute oh. Christians actually care for each other and Christians actually have a friendship and they're communing, there's not going to be need for pastoral counseling because you're being together. And the whole, like, iron sharpens iron, and everyone says that verse. I don't think anyone actually, like, knows exactly. that that hurts. It's painful. Yeah. And sometimes I'll be corrected, and I want to get defensive, and I want to be like, well, you don't know what you're talking about. And I'm like, wait. They do. I've told them my whole life story. Like they actually know and they're right. And you have to be able to accept that criticism and be open and honest with that person. And as you're building that, that's that's what it's terrifying. It really is like being vulnerable scares me sometimes because I'm just like, I don't I don't know if I can trust you. And I, that's personally my biggest problem is trust. And I'm like, I don't know if I can trust you with my problem. And as soon as I just have to be like, no, I'm going to do it and I'm going to see what happens. Like, I didn't tell anyone I was getting another master's because I didn't want people to be like, well, that's stupid. Why are you doing it? (laughs) And so I just didn't tell anyone. I just applied, got in and I just started. And (laughs) as I'm slowly telling people, it's a different reaction than what I thought. I thought they were going to say that it's careless and I shouldn't do it. But people are like, that's amazing. Like, that's so what you should be doing. And they're so encouraging about it. And I'm like, why was I afraid say things that I know that I'm supposed to be doing and it's just it's hard and I know it's hard but if you're going to start to be vulnerable just find one person just find that one person you can trust and just tell them just one thing you're dealing with and and, I mean, and go from there yeah you know um I, I do I you know one of the things especially with with pastors I think it is a mindset mm-hmm and, 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 of course, I, I grew up under everybody would always tell me if what you're doing is not working, you know, and you keep doing the same old thing, you're going to get the same old results. So you've got to uh, do something different. So in, in light of that, if you're afraid of being vulnerable, then, then it is a mindset. You have to change the mindset. Mm-hmm. And then it, so it may take some things, you know, you may have to do something different, um, uh, if you know, especially we would say fishing. So if you're fishing and you're not catching anything, then you got to change the way you're presenting or whatever it is. You got to change your bait. Yeah. <laughs> and so maybe with with what what we're talking about, 
it does have a lot to do with the person, and you have to change the mindset, and, and we have to change some of that. I want to ask a couple more questions, though. Okay. I want to go from one extreme to the other. <laughs> so so let's talk. Let me, let me just, so someone is just finishing school and going to go into ministry, but you've got someone that is older now and, and, and they're looking at retirement and, and you've got two things. Um, you know, uh, one of the things that I, I've learned that uh, in the last 10 years is this word they're using now, emerging adulthood, that that uh, is increased 70 percent is what they were saying. So, you know, we're, we're, we're not an adolescent anymore. So did we turn 18? Now are we an adult or just because we're this age or is there something to that? But but one of the things is, is that, you know, growing up, there there were, uh, uh, you know, all you got to do is get married. Now you're an adult. Uh, uh, oh, if you finish college, get a degree, you're an adult now. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, you've got children. Certainly you've got to grow up. I don't think those things um uh, work anymore. Uh, they're getting pushed later in life, and and so with 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 young young men, women that are coming into ministry, you know, uh, you know. First of all, now you're you got a family transition. I grew. I was at home, and I went off to college, and now I'm just thrust into this this job as in, in ministry and, and, and new relationships, having to establish uh, uh, what's the authority. Uh, but I've also got to cement my own identity. You know, what are my gifts? What am I doing that? So, uh, so in, 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 in that, you've got people that are coming into ministry that they've been taught in school what to expect, but I'm not really sure that when you get there, it's what you expected. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's what I'm, but then you go to the opposite side. So that's stressful. Yeah. Cause now you're going to meet a whole new bunch of people and are you going to work for somebody that you have no clue who it is? What are they going to be like? Will they be a dictator or a, a person that, that passes it out? But then on the other hand, you've got people that, that are sixties and seventies now and and, and they're getting older, and, and it is getting tougher physically to, to do all they were doing. But some of them can't retire because uh, oh, I wrote some statistics down somewhere. I, I was writing things down. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, most pastors, most let's, let's put most people that are in ministry, uh, the church has never, you know, there's not a 401. The church didn't do things like that. So most pastors get to this point of their life that they haven't provided adequate enough to retire and they can't afford to retire, but maybe because they're getting older that they can't keep up with the pace that they were working at. Um, so now, now they're forced to retire and you see them at Walmart saying, welcome to Walmart as a greeter or whatever the case is. What do you have, what can you say to somebody that's starting into ministry and somebody that is at the end of ministry finishing up? Do you have something mm-hmm. to say to yeah. both of those? Cause one's starting mm-hmm. and one is ending. 
One is ending and doesn't really know what it's going to look like. And one is starting thinking they know what it's looked like. But when they actually get there, it's not what they Mm -hmm. anticipated. Yeah. um, Well, for those starting out, I would just say, like, keep an open mind and set your boundaries early. Um, If you are a young pastor and you have like a family and a wife, like set your time off, stick to it, but also keep an open mind. I think most people, when they come out of college, they're like, I'm ready to radicalize the church and I know just what to do. And I mean, while you might have great ideas, don't ignore the past generations. Don't ignore that the movements and the strides they've made for the church Definitely bring in your own ideas, but then as you progress and you get older, don't think that your way is the best way. And I think some of the biggest impedances that an older generation can have is that sometimes they forget that they don't know everything. And I get being in ministry for 50 plus years, yes, you guys know so much, and there's so much information that you can teach us, but there's also so much information that the younger generation can also teach you. And I think that um, the generational, uh, the different generations between a church are probably one of the best assets the church has. Because, yeah, if I went in and I started to lead a church and I'm doing everything as being younger and a millennial, I'm going to have a different viewpoint of everything. And I may not reach 65 year old people solely because I just cannot relate to that. Right. And. So me thinking that, oh, I know the best way to do it is definitely going to hinder and it's going to just alienate half of a congregation. Whereas the 60 year old pastor who's like, I've been doing this for 40 years. I know exactly what to do is now alienating their younger generation. And I think having the multiple generations on staff is a huge asset. But for the younger pastors coming in, really setting your boundary, like knowing this is what I'm doing for the job and this is what I'm doing for myself and for my family. Um, getting into a devotional time with God outside of any preparement for your job. Cause it is difficult as you read the Bible for work, but you also need to read the Bible for yourself and just having those boundaries set and just keeping an open mind, I think is going to uh, help you throughout. And I say the older pastors who are, at retirement age and they don't know if they should retire or what they want to do. I mean, that's tough. Yeah. I don't know if I (laughs) can speak specifically to what they're going through because I'm not there yet and I don't know. But I mean, if you're also keeping an open mind and trying to utilize the younger staff you have, I think that'll help you last a little longer than saying, well, I'm too old. I'm out of the game. I got to retire. It's, New year old, and I mean, we've had the conversation of uh, energy and experience, where you have the experience and you have all of this knowledge because of how long you've been doing this, but then we have the energy of being young and able to just go. And so I think utilizing that multi-generation is just a huge asset, and it makes transitions through the church, and any changes you're making is going to make it easier because you have this connection and this bridge between two different groups of people all moving together and it also really depends on the culture of your church and I think that as people develop a culture within their church where they're okay with change and they're okay with just 
not having the right answers. And I think it's probably terrifying for a pastor to say, I don't know, because they should have the answer. But having that ability to just, I don't know, I'll research it. I'll get back to you. Like, let's figure it out together. And just anything like that, it just creates, it lessens the stigma that a pastor should know everything. A pastor's perfect. It allows the pastor to have slight imperfections. And it just kind of settles the expectations of church. And it really helps everyone know that we're all just imperfect people. And we're all just trying to seek a relationship with a perfect God. But none of us are perfect. You know, talking about that on the retirement or the retiring side of it, and you brought in that, uh, it would be fascinating to be able to look at all of Charles Stanley's mm-hmm. staff. Uh, he retired at 80 this yeah. year. and But uh, to have lasted that long in ministry, he had to somehow must have had applied what you just said to his own uh, ministry because mm-hmm. he he was 80 and retired at 80. But I do have one more question. <laughs> so let's talk about, so a, a young couple straight out of school, I, I don't know if anybody is in ministry, is listening to us, but say somebody now has been in ministry five to 10 years and then they're in a, a rural area and they, they're in a, a smaller church, whatever size it might be, but not a lot of staff. It's lonely mm-hmm. being in this position, and then you may not know any of the preachers around you or anything. So when, when you look at that, you're, you don't feel like you're something of a big part of a team. You're just, hey, I'm just here. What would you say to a person that, uh, that's, uh, and I know you don't have the experience yet, but what is, is someone starting into ministry, what would you say to somebody that's been in it now for five or ten years and they feel alone? Mm-hmm. What, what would you say to them? Um, I would say find the people, like find people you want to sit at your table. I mean, the the idea of not necessarily having anyone to lean on is a terrifying thought. And like that feeling of being alone is so disabling. And it really can hinder any growth that you want to have. And if you're in a rural area and there's really no one around, I think you have to go to the country club and go somewhere to try to find a group of people, whatever you enjoy doing. If it's golf, go to the golf course and just try to make friends. (laughs) Like you have some form of like mutual like connection and enjoyment of golf. Like you just have to find friends. And I mean, only when you get that community built up around you, are you going to, like feel like you can actually live because you're able to commune with people. You're able to talk and like be with people and it's not going to feel like such a labor and like such a burden to just, well, I go to church. I don't talk to anyone at church really because they're my congregation. They're not my friends. And then I go home and I have no friends and I have no one to talk to And that's going to like severely hinder your mental health because you're really going to feel like you have no outlet. And so you just have to find those people and you have to find anyone that you're willing to talk to, you enjoy, and that, I mean, I would say get friends who are, one, better than you. Um, I always try to find people who I think are better than me in some way um, so that I'm not just with people who I'm like, well, I have nothing to learn from any of you. It's somewhat it's people that I can always like look at. And I'm like, okay, I like this characteristic about them. I want that. I want to be more like this. And um, <laughs> there's uh, uh, the vice president of my school. Though one thing that he said that I love, and he's always said, don't take advice from people you don't want to be like. 
And I think it's probably one of the best things he's ever told me. Um, and it's really when I'm with people and I'm talking to people and I realize like, I don't really care for you as a person. Like your personality is not something I want to emulate. I don't really take their advice on how I should act. But when I see people who are just walking in humility and they're so ready and eager and expectant for God, I'm like, that's what I want. And when they speak, I'm way quicker to listen to them. Um, and I think if you don't necessarily have that community, you need to find it. So, so in, in, uh, what I was hearing you say, so as a pastor, then I can have friends that, that I have at my table. That's what you said. Yeah. So I could have friends at my table that are really my friends and they have, and they could actually absolutely have nothing to do with ministry. Is that what you're saying? Oh, absolutely. hundred percent. Yeah. Okay. I think to only have pastored friends is... I would actually encourage that a lot. Weird, Not weird. I think it would just... Sometimes you need opposition. Um, and one of my best friends is an atheist. He is. Uh, he's an anthropologist. Um, he's so smart. He's smarter than I'll ever be in all things science. And we're super close. And we have... He respects the fact that I follow God and I don't critique the fact that he's agnostic um but we just have this mutual respect and agreement to we'll talk about it and he called me the other day and he's like how how can you say you're christian and then you do x y and z and i'm like what and he apparently met a christian who was really rude to him and so he <laughs> called me about it and i'm like i'm sorry not all christians are rude but and he's like but like he's wearing a christian shirt and he flipped me off when we were driving and i'm like some people get mad. I know. <laughs> we're not perfect. And so he's one of the biggest oppositions in my life because he'll go hard sometimes into just, it makes no sense. And I'm like, no, it does. And so we'll argue about it. And I completely respect him and his knowledge of science. And he's incredibly intelligent, super nice guy. But we just, we differ on this one thing. And I don't think it hinders my relationship with God. If anything, it's, it's, solidifying it because as I'm arguing with him I'm realizing for myself the foundational knowledge that I have in God and that if he could shake it I'd be in trouble and if he could actually convince me that yeah God's not real then I would have to question if I actually ever believed in God without it but because he says things and I'm like oh no I don't agree with that at all like God is real present active in my life and then having that opposition just solidifies my belief but I mean, if you have someone who doesn't respect it, and if he continually just said I was idiot, um, idiotic and naive because I believed it, we wouldn't be able to have such an open conversation. But because he just respects what I believe, but then will ask me questions, we can have an open dialogue. I think the opposition actually helps me grow. And so, yeah, I don't think you all, if, as a pastor, have to have only pastor friends. Have friends with politicians, mechanics, be friends with anyone. <laughs> Because that opposition and that different um, viewpoint and mindset could help you figure out how to preach better. Okay. It could help you realize, oh, what I'm saying on stage only makes sense to pastors. How do I make sense to, to the, the lay to people? The rest of the people? Yeah. I mean, I'd ask the question, and this, might, this analogy might fall a little short, but I'd ask the question, do you want to sit at a round table or do you want to sit at a banquet table? Because if, if the only people that you're surrounding yourself with is people like you, 
then all I see is a straight line. Yeah. You know, you're sitting at a banquet table. But when you surround yourself with people different than you are, whether it is a mechanic or maybe it is an agnostic, um, you know, or even you're Pentecostal and you surround yourself with a Baptist or a Catholic, right? Now I see kind of this round table starting to take place because everybody's coming together to share the different ideas, to have the different conversation, and it's not this straight line, we all think the same, uh, you know, mentality that you right. that you'd get at a banquet table okay um you know and jesus ate with sinners well that was that's I what mean, he I was just... accused of <laughs> that he that he hung out with them more than he did anybody else so it's because they were the ones that needed a physician well that that is true I, but let, let me I, I i know i said i only had one more question <laughs> i have one more thing all right um so if as as a uh um, someone that goes to church, a member of a church or whatever it might be, what one thing could somebody in a local church, what could they do, just one thing, to help their pastor be better? Mm. Huh. I like that. You want, to, you want me to Especially, answer what you, you think? Know, cause you've talked, we've talked about all this stuff, you know, mm-hmm. we're, we're sometimes we're afraid to be vulnerable. Uh, we're afraid to talk. We're afraid to let our hair down. Uh, we're, we're afraid to let people really see what we're like at home. Cause we're, we're, we're perfect and, you know, and they can't see our imperfections. And, but what one thing could somebody say to their pastor or, or uh, it, the church they go to that 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 would be encouraging. One thing helpful to that person, young or old, whatever age they are. Okay, I think um, like we mentioned, like Carissa mentioned in the very beginning, how um, you know pastors do things and congregants don't want to step in because they just think, oh well, that's what the pastor does, and then eventually your pastor gets overwhelmed. Uh, because because stuff's not getting delegated. I think the, the, the one thing uh, that church congregants can do um, is get out of this mindset that uh, the pastor has a job that you can't do. Um, you know, other than our uh, experience in, in reading and studying Scripture— and, you know, potentially us going to school to learn how to put together a sermon. Yeah. I mean, I know normal people in a congregation that can probably preach better than half the pastors that I know. Uh, but they're, they're not pastors. But, we, you know, I think congregants need to get out of this mindset that, um, you know, pastor does that and we don't. Right. Like, we can't do that. Right. Because also what that does, too, is it, is it now hinders your congregation from feeling that they're capable to go out and witness. Right. You know, well, I'm not a preacher. I don't do this. I don't do that. Uh, another thing that I think uh, congregants could, you know, tell pastors that, that, that could be helpful is don't be, don't be afraid to challenge your pastor. Um, you know, he's not perfect. Nobody's perfect. If if he says something on stage uh, from the platform and you're looking at your Bible and you're like, I don't think that's right, confront him about it. You know, 
don't make a big scene in front of the whole church, but like, hey, pastor, can I talk to you for a second? You said this. You know, maybe you just yeah, misunderstood. Ask, ask him why. Ask maybe him why. Yeah, maybe. Where did he get this? Maybe from? he misspoke. Like you know, stuff like that happens all the time. Uh, so maybe you know, there's just a, a communication breakdown, um, or maybe the pastor's wrong. And if he takes that uh, criticism constructively, he'll look at that and go, "Oh, you're right. This is you know, this is a misinterpretation on my part." You know, I'll be sure to fix it, and then the next Sunday, hopefully, the pastor would stand up. Hey, I said this. I have to say this is wrong. I think that's a huge part of being vulnerable that okay. we were talking about earlier. That uh, you know, we're not we're not perfect people, um, but that's hard to do as a congregant because other congregants don't like when you do that. Um, I mean, I, I I mean, I've been told that. In times past, people have not liked me because I have challenged uh, pastor, and, and not even over theology. Just like, you know, hey, I don't like just a simple conversation uh, of at least what I thought was just a normal conversation, and I'm sure you thought was just a normal conversation of, hey, we don't like the way we're doing this. Uh, other people take it as. They're arguing, and he's yeah. disrespectful to pastor. Like yeah. pastor's in charge; he gets the final word. Um, and I mean, it, it's true he does get the final word. But I'm a huge proponent of the best idea wins. So, you know, uh, unless pastor just stands up and is like, "We're doing it this way because I said so," I mean, I can submit to that, and I'm fine with that. But you know, if I truly believe my idea or somebody else's idea is better. Like I'm gonna keep pushing for for best idea. So, uh, I, I think one of the best things that a, a congregant can do for a pastor to make a pastor better is don't be scared to critique your pastor. I just pray that your pastor has the ability to take that criticism constructively um, and not get to a point to where he just wants to throw up his hands and say, "I'm done and I won't be back next Sunday." That's that is. So, so I'm going to ask it this way. Well, okay. Did I not answer your no, no, question? No, no. Uh, but, but uh, yeah, <laughs> you did. But, but it makes me think this way now. So, let's leave out. This is like Sunday morning when he has three conclusions. Let, let's leave out uh, church work altogether. Uh, what one thing could a member do for their pastor to help him? To not get in a state of depression. Oh, just in life. In life. I, I'm asking a different question. Yeah, that's more that, towards that, Carissa right that there. That would be, I think, because we were talking, <laughs> I, I guess I'm trying to bring it back. We, we, were, we were talking about a mental health or, or, or pastors, specifically pastoral care, uh, to keep them from uh, getting into a place of despair, despondency, depression, and and what could a what without without the church member knowing anything? What could a church member just do? Mm-hmm. One thing for a pastor that might help them not fall in this uh, uh, percentage. Yeah, I mean, well, one always be praying for your pastors because they have more stress than anyone will ever know and some of the things you've told me that you do on a weekly basis I'm like I don't know where you have time for half of this so 
Like, yeah, definitely. Sometimes I'm shocked he has time to sit down and record a podcast, to be Always. honest. Like, I got to write a sermon for Sunday as soon as we're through with this. <laughs> yeah, and it's always, always be praying for your pastor because there's so many unspoken things that because no one ever really asks the pastor how they're doing. Yeah. The pa- it's like the pastor's job to always check in on everyone else. And there's really no one who's checking in on your pastor. So just always be praying for them and just asking God to just make sure that they're good and they're being refueled and replenished and that their vision is not falling. And so that, and then other than that, I mean, check in on your pastor, give him a call and just, Hey, like, and, and, and that's something that could be done. You know, I, I know focus on the family was very, uh, uh, instrumental in, in doing a pastor appreciation once a year, I think in October or something, whenever it was. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, people try to show their appreciation. But, you know, I, I think that it, it, it's very helpful if, if people did that on a, uh, it doesn't have to be church-related stuff, just mm-hmm. in general in life, um, uh, uh, pat them on the back. I don't know if that's even some we we talked about that the other day about love languages that, that, you know, maybe it's a pat on the back or, you know, hey, uh, you know, um, well, I could say lots of things. Bring him a cup of coffee. Yeah. If he drinks coffee. You know, if he drinks, you know, know, if I'm going to drink a cup of coffee, I want the, you know, I'm going to have some coffee, but I do (laughs) like the flavored stuff, you know, lots of that and some sugar in it. Mm -hmm. So mine's more. Uh, other stuff with with you a want coffee flavored creamer. Yes, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, my parents, my parents' pastor, um, he and I have not necessarily like. I don't see him that often, but when I do, he always makes a point of like, we'll sit down, we'll have a conversation. But then, even as I live out of state, I'll randomly call him, and his favorite football team is the Buffalo Bills, who are hit or miss on their games. So I'll text him randomly, and I'm like, "Hey, y'all won." congratulations and it's just like these little moments of communication and um the bills actually just returfed their entire football field and it looks were good selling cuts of their old turf to like in framed boxes and i had a friend who actually was on that project and i don't know why she thought of me she texted me and was like do you want some of this turf and i was like yes actually wait i do <laughs> and so i sent him um they made a welcome floor mat out of the turf from the Buffalo Bills field oh, wow. and then a small little cut in a shadow box and it's like authentic whatever the name of the field was like Buffalo Bills turf and it's just remembering that he's also human and he has a favorite so- like football team sometimes they lose and so he'll be upset when he comes in on a Wednesday night because they lost but like he's human and just checking in on him but also like I'll text him random questions uh, I texted him the other day and I was like hey what's your take on just like process theology? And he's like, I don't know what that is. And I was like, what? And he's like, I'm not, that's not me. And I'm like, all right, whatever. And then we just kind of like moved on to something else. And it's just like, it's familiarity. And I mean, if you don't have that level of familiarity with your pastor, I mean, try to have it, talk to them. Just they're human, make them feel human, check in on them. Always pray for him. Yeah, and I think, um, was it Kennedy that said, don't ask what this country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country? Um, 
you know, I'm thinking of that, and it, it's it's the same thing, right? Do, so many people ask, what can my pastor do for me? Or what can the church do for me? When they should be asking, what can I do for my pastor? Yeah, what can I do for my good, church? A good thing. I think that's great across the board, uh, you know, um, course you brought up something that's a whole nother subject though <laughs> familiar L- i can't even say the word now yeah uh, can't even say it now but uh, you know with pastors and congregations because in past you know we were we were kind of taught do you want me to be your friend or your pastor and, and it was almost like we were taught in the early days that there is a separation mm-hmm. But but I want I want to say one final thing because you you said something talking about that. Uh, my one of my best friends' father just passed away this past Saturday, and uh, Brad was was in his eighties. And uh, but uh, Brad was an just an incredible pastor. Never heard him preach or teach, but he was just an incredible man. And every time I always saw him, one of the things I remember most about him is he would look you face to face, eyeball to eyeball. And, and he would always ask me, the first question he'd always ask me, how are you doing personally? Mm-hmm. Not anything else. And then he'd say, well, how's Debbie? And he was retired from the ministry and uh, was a school teacher, pastor, uh, just great man. But But it was always, it was like, you could be in a room of a thousand people or a group of ten. It was like you mattered. That conversation, you that you, it mattered to him enough that he looked you eyeball eyeball, face to face. And uh, but but he never. It was the, later in the conversation. Well, how's the church? But it was always how are you doing personally, which opened up the can for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's it. So anyway, that's kind of. I just, my questions, we, you know, I'm not a psychologist. I took some classes, but uh, I uh, I thought that would be a great field. I'm too old to do it now, but. Uh, You're never too old. People, uh, you know, that's, that's one good thing is that being able to help people get to the root of the problem. Mm-hmm. And, and, and again, let me go back to myself. You know, the doctor said that, that I was depressed, but. The Lord said the root of my problem was is I just had a defeated mentality. And when you have a defeated mentality, you you, you see no way out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there might be people listening to us today, Will and Carissa, that feel like they're in a hole and no way out. And and it's not about just going and seeing a doctor. I do but think that, you know, I, I believe in doctors and, and, and things of that way. And there's things they can do and steps to help you, you know, get through whatever mental or maybe even medication. But I also know that that if you're in a hole and, and you're in a defeated mentality, Jesus won. When he come out of the grave, he won. Mm-hmm. And he won over everything. And uh, whatever you might be going through, he's the first place to start at. And he can help you in ever, whatever situation you might be in. You don't have to stay there. He can bring you out. Mm-hmm. Amen. Mm-hmm. Amen. Chris, any final thoughts, comments? I saw you brought a uh, a book. Didn't know if you wanted to share something out of it. Oh, no, that's just, I have to read that for class. Oh. I know what that's like. That's just homework. <laughs> homework. So uh, she's got to do homework when we're through. 
We're glad you came by and stopped yeah. in. Yeah, thanks so much uh, for being here and doing this. Um, she does a whole lot that a lot of the people here at the church don't see what she does, but uh, she does a whole lot for me. She does a lot for all of us, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah, she probably, yeah, for y'all, but she does, she does do a lot for me, and I, sometimes I don't tell her how much I appreciate what she does. No, you do. <laughs> well, people, uh, thanks for listening to another episode of After the Catch. As you uh, probably noticed, um, Papa's tackle box has changed a little bit. Um, you know, it's no longer uh, Papa's 15, 20-minute um, teaching, but it's actually turned into a conversation between Papa and I. Um, and that's been a lot of fun. We hope that you're enjoying that. Um, I know we're very much enjoying uh, recording them. At least I am. I don't know about Papa. Uh, it's fun. He, he, he's mentioned that writing uh, writing his notes to be more conversational has been a challenge. Um, uh, yes. But, you know, they say old dogs can't learn new tricks, but uh, he's learning a new I'm trick. I'm trying. I'm trying really uh, hard. But that's been a lot of fun. So, uh, you know, as you may have noticed from the last episode of After the Catch, in this episode, uh, we're no longer talking about uh, the, the Tuesday podcast, um, but we are really moving into uh, our heart behind this podcast, and that's just talking about, uh, you know, life, ministry, and leadership, um, and, you know, just covering a, a broad spectrum of issues and uh, concerns and things that, that pastors struggle with uh, or just normal church people struggle with or just normal people struggle with um, on a daily basis. So we hope that this conversation today has been helpful to you in some way. Again, we thank you, Carissa, for being here in the studio with us. Uh, thank you, Papa, for doing some research and having some questions, because uh, I really was leaning on y'all uh, this morning as we recorded. But uh, again, thanks everyone for listening. We love you all, and peace out. Peace out.